0: Well, it is a joy to be with you again here at Grace Church Greeley. What Josh said earlier is exactly the way we feel back in Cape Coral. We look upon this congregation as a sister church. And in behalf of Grace Baptist at Cape Coral, I would like to uh, formally publicly express to you thanks, and gratitude for your kindness toward us, your prayers for us, and the generous gift that you made for us last year about this time as we were recovering from Hurricane Ian. And the kindness that you showed to us, the generosity you showed to us, has been used to help many people in the community of Cape Coral as we're still very much involved in the rebuilding process from that hurricane. And We thank you for your prayers and your expressions of love. That's just kind of the latest uh, and most obvious ways that we have felt loved by this congregation. I always enjoy being here with you. I love this church. Uh, By God's kindness, I've been able to be here worshiping with you over the last several years at intervals. And it's amazing to me, and it is something that causes me to praise God to see what He is doing here. And the way the church is growing, not only numerically, but spiritually, theologically, and and in love for one another. It's just hard to even walk through the doors of this place and not be greeted by expressions of sincere love for the brethren. And that's the work of God's Spirit here among you. And I thank God for that, and I'm always delighted to be a part of a worship service here in Greeley with you. Also want to say on behalf of Founders Ministries, thank you for your support. Of that ministry, your church has been so faithful and consistent for years. Uh, you've even uh, given to us a couple of your elders to serve on our board uh, to help guide that ministry. so we're grateful for the labors of your pastor uh, and uh, Bill Wilcuts as well as they also help uh, in guiding and directing founders. This morning, for our time of studying God's Word, I want to direct our attention to the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther. You'll find Esther right after Nehemiah in the Old Testament, right before Job, which is right before Psalms. So it's almost to the middle part of the Old Testament. If you'll open your copy of God's Word to Esther, I encourage you to keep it open because we're going to be looking at several passages from that book. Esther tells the story of the way God preserved His old covenant people during a very desperate time in their history. It was a time that they were threatened to be annihilated, to be completely removed from the earth. The events that are recorded in the book of Esther take place between the years 483 and 474 BC. They take place in the Persian capital city, of Susa. And this was about 100 years after the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem and conquered Judah and taken many of the Jewish people back to what was then the land of Babylon in exile. When the Medo Persian Empire conquered Babylon in 539 BC, the Persian king Cyrus allowed many of the Jews to return to their homeland in Jerusalem, though that was still under the Persian Empire. And so many Jews did go back to Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but many more stayed around what was then the capital city of Susa throughout the Medo-Persian Empire. The book of Esther describes events that took place among the Jews that remained around that capital city in what had previously been the land of Babylon, but now is the land of the Medes and the Persians. This morning, I don't intend to give an exposition of any one specific passage in the book of Esther, but rather what I want us to do is to consider important lessons that we find in various passages concerning how God dealt with this young woman whose name is Esther. The story of Esther teaches us that the unseen God always faithfully works to fulfill His purpose in the world. It's a book about God's providence. That is, it's a book that dramatically demonstrates various ways that God accomplishes His purposes through the various ups and downs of life. And though it is dramatic as we look back on it and see how He did it, in the unfolding of his providential working, he does it almost invisibly. As such, the book of Esther helps us to trust God, even when life doesn't make sense. Even when it seems like God is absent and all hope is lost. The events take place during the reign of King Ahasuerus or Xerxes the as he's more commonly known in history books. It tells about an evil plot to destroy the Jewish people, a plot that was hatched in the mind of a wicked man named Haman, who was elevated to a high office in the Persian Empire by King Ahasuerus. The vast Persian Empire extended From India all the way through Judah and to that realm around Susa. And so all of the Jews that were known in that day lived under the authority of King Ahasuerus. Haman wanted to annihilate them all. But through incredible activities of the unseen God, using unlikely people. God not only spared his old covenant people from annihilation, he actually reversed things so that they came to thrive. The Lord accomplishes the salvation of his people in most unusual ways. We might say in the book of Esther, in the events that are described there, that he fulfills his purposes anonymously. Because God's not even mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet when you read it. With the eyes of faith and what God tells us about Himself throughout the Scriptures, you can't help but see His fingerprints everywhere. His hand moving, guiding the events in order to fulfill His purpose for His people's lives. Brothers and sisters, that's precisely the way that God is working in our lives today. He is ruling and overruling to accomplish his good purposes for us. Esther is only one of two women that have books in the Bibles named for them. The other is the book of Ruth. And she's presented to us in this book almost as a Jewish Cinderella. She had a lot of challenges in her life, a lot of deficits that she started out life with. She was orphaned at a young age and so was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And then, through circumstances completely beyond her control, she was selected to become a part of the harem of King Ahasuerus. From there, God used her to bring about the salvation of his people at the very time when their enemy was determined to destroy them. Well, to get us going in this overview of Esther's life, I want to direct your attention to the second chapter, verses 5 through 18. Esther, chapter 2, and I'll read from verses 5 through 18. That's going to be our starting point, but keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at other passages from this book along the way. I want us to think about the way God used Esther to save his people from being destroyed. So read along with me as I read aloud from Esther chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Heggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Heggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him. the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for women, Since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines." She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes, to the provinces, and gave gifts with royal generosity. God always directs and equips his people to fulfill his purpose in them and through them. We see this in the life of Esther and the way God dealt with her. The events that we just read about took place after King Ahasuerus had given a banquet for war, to plan war against the Greek empire that lasted, that banquet lasted six months. And then after that, he had a smaller, more intimate type of party for his friends there in the realm of Susa that lasted for a week. And as they drank and became increasingly intoxicated, he decided that he would call for his beautiful Queen Vashti to come in so that she could be gawked at by all of his buddies. And Queen Vashti decided she wanted nothing to do with that, and she refused. And of course, to refuse the king was a high crime, and so he and his counselors determined what should be done in light of his queen's refusal to come at his command, and the decision was made to depose her, and then to search throughout all of the vast empire, gathering up all of the beautiful virgin women and bringing them to King Ahasuerus, that he might test them, have his way with them, and decide from among them who might take Queen Vashti's place. And Esther was chosen by King Ahasuerus for that purpose. God used Esther in order to fulfill not only good purposes in her, but through her for his people. And he did it in various ways. There are three ways that this story reveals to us that I want to highlight for us in our study this morning. Three particular ways, particular ways that God directs and equips his people that we see illustrated in the life of Esther. The first is God gives his people personal advantages and disadvantages. He gives to every one of his children advantages And disadvantages. If you look again at verse 7 that we read, you'll see that Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Well, in that brief introduction, we see that she certainly was a disadvantaged young woman. She was born in exile. She didn't know her own homeland. Her name Hadassah in Hebrew means myrtle, but she had not only a Hebrew name, she had a Persian name because she was living in this pagan empire. The name Esther, her Persian name, means star. It's most likely an allusion to the pagan goddess Ishtar. So many of the blessings and promises that God made to his old covenant people are bound together with, interwoven to his promises regarding the land, that land of promise. And yet here, this Hebrew girl had never experienced the blessings of even setting foot on the land of promise. She never saw Jerusalem. She never experienced offering sacrifices at the temple. Compounding that, she was an orphan. An orphan. God designed his world such that children should be brought up in homes with both a mother and a father. And yet Esther was robbed of both at a young age. It's incontrovertible that children raised by a loving mother and a loving father have many advantages over children who are not. Sociological study after study has validated that such that orphans are categorized as a vulnerable population in our day. And the same thing is true of children though to a lesser degree, who grow up in single-parent homes. Any way you look at it, any way you want to try to evaluate it, there's a disadvantage to not having a father and mother raise you. Yet God has often used such disadvantages of home life to fulfill his very purpose for his people. J.R.R. Tolkien lost both his parents as a young boy. Yet God used the influence of a priest who raised him to stir up the literary genius that God had given him that resulted in the Lord of the Rings books that we love today. In the New Testament, Timothy, we read, was Paul's right hand man. He was his primary colleague in the ministry. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. And it's to Timothy that he passes the baton of that apostolic leadership of the early church. And yet, if you know about Timothy, you know that though his mother was a wonderful Christian woman, his father was not a Christian man. And so we read about his mother and grandmother being the influences on him spiritually. He had disadvantages of not having a loving Christian father, and yet God used him in remarkable ways. Brothers and sisters, it is simply a fact that every one of us have both advantages and disadvantages in our lives. Yet your disadvantages are no barrier to God fulfilling his good purpose for your life. In fact, your disadvantages may become the very means that God uses to accomplish His purposes, His purposes for your life. So stop and think for a moment. What disadvantages do you have? We all have them. They could be physical. It might be medical, relational, maybe emotional. Nobody goes through this fallen world without experiencing deficits. Maybe you're here this morning and you have to live with a chronic disease or with chronic pain or with a broken relationship that'll never be mended or with meager finances. Our unfulfilled hopes and dreams that you now realize will never be fulfilled. Maybe you're sitting here today And you're living with scars from your own self inflicted wounds. And you look back and you grieve decisions that you made, choices that you made. Brothers and sisters, Esther reminds us that God's grace and power are so much greater than all of our disadvantages that our disadvantages cannot and will not thwart his good purpose for our lives. But Esther wasn't completely disadvantaged. She didn't only have disadvantages. She also had some real advantages. She was part of the Old Testament people of God. Though she was orphaned, she had an older cousin who was willing and able to take her into his home and loved her as if she were his own daughter. From what we learn about this older cousin, Mordecai, we can be sure that she was taught the ways of the living God from his leadership in their home. If you look at verse 7 again in in chapter 2, you'll see that the author highlights the fact that Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, a beautiful form. God gave her physical attractiveness. She was pleasant in her appearance. And God gave her those advantages in order to accomplish his purpose. We should never dismiss or discount the advantages that God has given to us in our lives. If you're a child of God, then you can be sure on the authority of what God says in his word in 1 Corinthians 12, that he has gifted you. He has strengthened you for some kind of good work. As his child, you know that he intends for you to be useful in his kingdom in some way. Think about what you have right now in your life that are advantages. Do you have health? Do you have strength? Do you have a good job, friends, a family who loves you? Are you a member of a healthy church where your soul is being cared for and you're being discipled in the ways of Jesus Christ? Consider the advantages that the Lord has given you. Thank him for them. And then look for ways that you might steward those advantages so that you might live with him with all that you have where you are right now. That's what Johnny Erickson Tata has done. In 1967, when she was a 17-year-old, very active, very athletic young woman, she dove headfirst into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck, and it resulted in her being paralyzed, leaving her a quadriplegic. She spent the last 56 years of her life in a wheelchair with no feeling in most of her body with no use of her arms or her legs, every morning on a rotating basis, one of her girlfriends will come and help get her out of bed, will clean her catheter, will empty her urine bag, wash her, dress her, put on her makeup, and fix her hair. In 2010, she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer and underwent extensive surgery and chemotherapy. Five years later, the cancer returned and she had to undergo extensive radiation therapy. It's safe to say that Johnny Erickson Tata has many disadvantages, far more disadvantages than most of us in this room will ever experience. Yet she has not allowed her disadvantages to overwhelm her, or to define her. She hasn't lived in hopelessness and despair. Quite the opposite is true. If you're unfamiliar with Johnny's story, I encourage you to look her up. Read one of the 50 books that she has written. Or listen to some of the songs that she has written and recorded or study some of the pieces of artwork, the paintings that she has painted by holding a paintbrush with her teeth, or listen to the award-winning daily radio program that she hosts, or read about Johnny and Friends in their International Disability Center, or her Wheels for the World that provides wheelchairs for disadvantaged, disabled children throughout the world. I could go on, But here's my point. Johnny Erickson Tata has not let her disadvantages discourage her, but rather she has used both her disabilities and her abilities to live for the Lord Jesus in the best way that she can. In fact, if you've read much of her story, you probably know that she considers being paralyzed not only a disadvantage but a great gift that God has given to her. Listen to the way she describes it in her little booklet, Hope the Best of Things. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what I mean because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we will have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Brothers and sisters, the bruisings that come into our lives under the providence of God are his blessings to us. He gives us disadvantages and advantages all for the purpose of fulfilling what He intends to be good for us and in order to do good through us. Some of you may have been born with severely challenging disadvantages. Some of you may have been born with great advantages. There are others that You might have brought upon yourself either through cultivation of gifts that have been given or neglect of opportunities. But however you find yourself today sitting here with both advantages and disadvantages, recognize that they are all brought into your life under the sovereign control of God. When you realize this, you will not glory in your advantages now, nor will you wallow in your disadvantages. Rather, you will seek to live by faith, to be able to be strengthened and encouraged, to trust that the Lord who has directed and equipped you thus far will continue to direct and equip you as you seek to live for him. And you can do that with confidence, with hope, with joy, knowing that he is fulfilling his good purposes for your life. So God gives us advantages and disadvantages, just as he did with Esther. The second way that we see God ruling and overruling in our lives to fulfill his good purposes for us is that he places us in circumstances beyond our control. Again, in the verses we read, if you look at verses 8 and 9, you'll see that not only has God made us the way that we are, he also has put us where we are. He did that for Esther. I mean, Esther was taken into the king's palace through no choice of her own. And she pleased the king's servant, Haggai, won his favor. He provided her with things that she would need in order to be pleasing to the king. Think about this. Here's this woman who was born in exile. She was made an orphan. She was drafted into the king's harem and given favor, not only with the caretaker, but with the king himself. And through all of this, she was given access to the one man in all the world who had the power to reverse the death sentence that had been announced against her people. She chose none of these things. God directed her life. Brothers and sisters, that's true of you and me in so many ways. We, we live in a time and in a place where we have so much freedom, and we can make so many decisions and exercise so many options that it's easy for us to overlook how circumscribed our lives actually are under the hidden providence of our God. Let me think about it for a moment. Did you choose your parents? Did you choose where you were born? When you were born? Did you choose your hair color? Your height? No, God did that. God directed and equipped you in all of those ways. He also is the one who determined to make you either male or female. And contrary to what many are teaching today, that your sex or if you prefer your gender is something that is assigned to you at birth that you can later determine for yourself to be something other than what you were born. You are either a male or a female by God's design. God made you one or the other. And he did so in order to fulfill his good purpose in you and through you. Esther found herself as a beautiful young woman in a royal palace, not because of any design of her own. This was not a life goal that she fulfilled, but it was God's direction. God put her there, and he did so to fulfill his purposes for her and through her. This is exactly what we see in the life of the Old Testament patriarch, Joseph. It was Joseph's brother's sin that resulted in him becoming a slave in Egypt. It was Joseph's own faithfulness to God that refused the seduction of his master's wife that resulted in him being imprisoned. Joseph was put where he was, when he was, not by any of his own choices and desires, but because of God's providence. And yet, when you read the story of Joseph and you get to the last chapter of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, you see that he understands it and he declares it. That though his brothers meant evil against him by what they did, God was doing good things for his people to save his people from disaster from starvation by bringing him before them into the land of plenty. Brothers and sisters, that's precisely how God uses the circumstances in our lives. He sovereignly, providentially overrules them in order to fulfill good purposes. Purposes in us, purposes through us. Now that doesn't mean that You should never seek to change your circumstances. If you can improve your situation in life in a legitimate, God-honoring way, you're certainly free to do so. There's wisdom in trying to do so. But what this does mean is that you're not to look upon your current circumstances and think that in any way God has abandoned you, or that God is not with you, or that He's not at work to fulfill His purposes For you. And that's true no matter how painful, how difficult your present circumstances may be. And it's true no matter how unjustly they may have been pressed upon you. And I say that reverently because I know that there are many here who have lived through horrific pain, horrific sorrow, many of you through the wicked treatment of other people, and the scars are deep, and you'll live with those scars the rest of your lives. But I can say with absolute confidence that your God and Father is determined to use even those horrible, abusive injustices against you to fulfill His good purposes in you and through you. How can I say that? How can I be confident in saying that? Because that's precisely what the cross of Jesus Christ teaches us. When you look at what happened on the cross, when Jesus Christ, the God-man, was executed outside those gates of Jerusalem, you have to admit it was the most unjust, wicked act in human history. From any angle that you look at it, from a human standpoint, what took place should not have taken place. He was the only righteous man who ever lived. He not only was not a criminal, he was not a sinner. And yet, with wicked hands, wicked men plotted against him and unjustly executed him as if he were the worst of criminals. It's the most heinous miscarriage of justice the world has ever seen. The most immoral act in all of history. And yet, when you back away and you ask, where was God? What was God doing in the death of his own son at Calvary? The scripture teaches us to answer, God was present. And he was orchestrating the events. In that most wicked act of human history, God was doing his deepest work of redemption. He took his son, the righteous one, who came to live not for himself, but for sinners like you and me, to earn the righteousness that we owe to God that we cannot pay. And he had him put on a cross and he poured out his wrath against sin in his son. He made his son to be the bearer of sin and to make an atonement, a payment for sin. So that as our substitute, all who trust in him might, as we have sung, have his righteous robes given to us and our sin credited to him have our sin paid for in his death, so that anyone and everyone who would trust in him would be reconciled to God forever. That's the wisdom, the power, the providence, the love of our great God. Listen to the way the prophet Isaiah anticipated it. When he speaks of Jesus in chapter 53 of his book, He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. The first disciples came to recognize this as persecution broke out shortly after the Spirit of God was given in power at Pentecost. The disciples gathered in an upper room and began to pray. They they were asking God to come and intervene in the persecution, the opposition that they were experiencing and listen to the way they prayed as their prayers recorded in Acts chapter 4. Verse 27, it says, as they cry out to God, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In that most wicked, unjust act in human history, God was bringing about the salvation of his people. We need to meditate on that and think about the wisdom of God that is displayed to us in the cross. What the cross does is it leads us to understand that God is working out his purposes in our circumstances, no matter how difficult, painful, or unjust they may be. If God was doing his deepest work in the most unjust event of all of human history, brothers and sisters, even when we cannot see it, we cannot explain it, we do not understand it, we can be assured that God is working through the difficulties, no matter how painful, how unjust they might be in our own lives. It's the cross that guarantees us that all of the promises that God has given to us are true. It's because of the death of Jesus that we can be sure that God will indeed cause all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all How will he not also with him freely also give us all things? The promises of God to his people are yes, amen, guaranteed, assured by the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Christ today? If so, take heart. Take heart and let the truth of the cross begin to shine its light into your life and your circumstances and endure the trials that this life inevitably brings in the light of that cross. If you're not trusting Christ, well, trust him now. Why wouldn't you trust him? Why wouldn't you be reconciled to your Creator through His provision of salvation in the Lord Jesus? He died on that cross for people like you. He died so that as you turn from your sin and you come to the end of yourself and recognize that you need to be reconciled to your Creator, that as you trust in the provisions of your Creator in Jesus, you will be reconciled. So believe him, take God at his word, humble yourself, and look to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and be reconciled to your God. Well, God gives us both our advantages and our disadvantages in order to fulfill his good purposes for us and through us. And that's why he places us in situations beyond our control. But finally, the third way that we see the Lord working in Esther's life that teaches us how he works in our lives is we see him working through both faithfulness and unfaithfulness. God accomplishes his purposes through our faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. Through our strong faith as well as our weak faith. Have you ever stopped to... Evaluate Esther's faith in the story that this book sets before us. Was her faith strong or was it weak? Was she faithful or was she faithless? There's no easy answer to that question, just as you and I can't give a simple answer to the question when we ask it of our own lives. In some ways, If we're going to read it honestly, we have to confess that Esther was faithless. Or at least her faith was very weak at times. Stop and think about the unlawful things that Esther did. She became a concubine. A part of a king's harem. To be there to serve his wicked appetites. She married... A Persian, not part of the people of God. This was contrary to the law of Moses that had been given in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. A law that both Ezra and Nehemiah reaffirmed after the exile. And the people were led into that land of Babylon that became Persia. Have you ever thought about this? Should Esther have gone along or should she have protested? When the king's servant came and saw her and said, come, you're going to become one of the candidates of this contest where the king's going to get a new queen. You're going to become a part of his harem. Should she have run away? Fought? Hidden? Hidden? Was it a faithful act for her to agree to become the king's mistress? Should she try to sabotage the efforts of the king's caretaker, Haggai, who looked at her and God gave her favor in his eyes so that she began to receive extra benefits in preparation? Should she have sabotaged that? Tried to make herself look ugly rather than more beautiful? And then when the king said, I'll have you as my wife, should she have protested? Should she have refused? No doubt. What we know, even in this story, but what we know from other history books about Xerxes I, she would have been put to death had she offended him in such a high-handed way. But wouldn't death be preferable to what she agreed to do? What's the righteous thing That Esther should have done. What would you do if you were in her shoes? All of us would like to think that in such situations we would respond with perfect clarity and strong faith to do exactly the right thing. But so often, life is simply not like that. Sometimes, you may not know what is the righteous thing to do. The best thing, given only poor options. At other times, you might know what the righteous thing to do is, but your faith may waver, and you hesitate, and you don't want to do it. Well, we see Esther hesitating. Not only did she not hesitate to join the king's harem and accept his marriage proposal, we see that she did hesitate to go before the king in order to seek the salvation of her people. When Mordecai first commanded her to go, now that she's queen, and to intercede in behalf of her people before the king, she refused. She feared the king's displeasure and what would, that would mean for her more than she desired the salvation of her people. We see this in chapter 4. When Queen Esther learned that Mordecai, having heard the edict that went out from Haman, this wicked man, to annihilate the Jews, when Esther heard that Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes and would not be comforted, she sent a messenger to him. And look at chapter 4, verse 5 of Esther. We read, Then Esther called for Hathach one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Her faith faltered. At that point, when something needed to be done that she was in a position to do, she sends word to Mordecai, I could die. You can't just burst into the presence of Ahasuerus. He's an unstable king. He kills people on a whim. Again, the history books tell us of some of the madness of this king and the way that he dispatched with human life without thought. And so here's Esther being called upon to do something in faith And she responds in fear. Does that startle you? Have you ever noticed how many times the Bible sets before us men and women who are examples of faith, whose faith we are told to follow, and yet when you look at their lives, you see, well, wait a minute, their faith wasn't always strong. I mean, read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, that wonderful chapter that commends men and women of faith to us like Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Moses, and Gideon. See what is said about their faith and then go back to the Old Testament and read the events of their lives. We're told in the 11th chapter of Hebrews they had faith unwavering. (laughs) When you go back and read their lives, you see, wait a minute. There were... Many times, including those people that I just named, when their faith wavered significantly. Their faith was weak at times. Yet it was acceptable to God. We see this in John the Baptist. John, who went as a forerunner to Jesus Christ and boldly preached out in the wilderness, looking at Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and calling them a brood of snakes, rebuking them, refusing to baptize them. And yet, when John was arrested and put in prison by Herod, he knew his life was coming to an end. He sent disciples to Jesus. He says, are you really the one? Or should we look for somebody else? His faith wavered. Think about the apostle Peter. Jesus, if all these other guys deny you, I never will. He takes a sword out and tries to take the head off one of those soldiers that came to arrest Jesus. And yet within a few hours, when a little slave girl is asking, aren't you a Galilean? Aren't aren't you one of his disciples? Peter curses to deny that he even knows Jesus his faith wavered. Esther's faith was not always strong, but it was real. And when it mattered most, it enabled her to venture wholly on the Lord as she came to submit wholly to his will. In the final analysis, she trusted the Lord. That had been the bent of her life. She had demonstrated that through heeding the instruction of Mordecai, who taught her the ways of God. Again, in the second chapter, we see in verse 10 that she didn't make known the fact that she was a Jew because Mordecai had told her not to do so. Even after she was in the king's court, she did not make known her kindred or her people to the king, though she was his queen, because Mordecai told her not to do so. In the decisive moment, when she was faced with a decision she could not escape. She trusted the Lord and did her duty. Again, look at chapter 4. Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I perish. She asked for the help of Mordecai and the fellow Jews that they would fast in her behalf, and with that fasting, obviously, would pray. And she herself, with her attendants, gave up three days fasting and praying. She determined to do what she should do and leave the consequences with God. If I perish, I perish. What a beautiful picture of humble, simple faith. Real faith. Not faith that was unmixed and without fear, but a faith that was determined to trust the Lord regardless of what might happen. There's no bravado, no boasting by Esther. She didn't know if the king would accept her petition or not. She had no control over the outcome of her actions. But she came to a point where she determined that she must do what could be done, even though she could not do what must be done. Brothers and sisters, we're all going to face moments like that in our lives. There are times when you realize that you cannot do what must be done. The solution is beyond your ability or control you'll face some situations that only God can fix. Circumstances that only God can change. But do not let that truth, that realization, keep you from doing what you can and should do. When we cannot do what must be done, we must nevertheless be willing to do what can be done. And that's what Esther did. And the result was God working out His good purpose in her life and through her life. He used her to save the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. Brothers and sisters, do you ever have those times of doubt and fear when, when you are afraid that your faith might fail? Have you fallen into moments or maybe seasons of unbelief? Well, be assured of this, that though we must never be satisfied with weak faith, we should always pray with the disciples of Jesus, Lord, increase our faith with that father of that boy that couldn't be helped. I believe, help my unbelief. That should always be our prayers. We should not fear for one moment that our weak and sometimes faltering faith will in any way cause God's purpose for our lives to fail. It will not. It cannot. In 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul writes, even when we are faithless, God is faithful because God cannot deny himself. It's not the strength of your faith that keeps you united to Christ. It's the object of your faith. It's the Christ in whom you believe even with weak faith. If you're not trusting Christ, trust him now. Have you thought, well, I'm just not sure I can make it. I'm not sure I'll be able to continue. I I want to trust him, but I know my history. I know my proclivities, and I just don't know that I'm going to be strong enough to hang on to him. (laughs) You bow with your little faith and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and he'll hang on to you. He will save you. He will keep you. He will guide you and fulfill good purposes in you and through you. Well, there are many lessons for us to learn from God's work in and through Esther. Let me simply close by highlighting a few of them. First, as Christians, we can be sure that God has a purpose for our lives as we trust his provisions that he's given to us. Don't let your abilities cause you to gloat and glory in what you have. Don't let your disadvantages cause you to wallow in fear and thinking, I can do nothing and my life will never be good. Secondly. God will fulfill that purpose he has for you by using all of the advantages and disadvantages that he entrusts to you. Thirdly, the circumstances of your life have been designed by the Lord for your welfare and his glory. God is doing something that will redound to his glory forever. And in Christ, he is including you in the telling of this incredible story. And though you may not have a place in this part of the story, your place over here in the small corner of the story is not insignificant because it's what God has designed for you to do and to fulfill. Fourth, wherever you are with whatever you have, God has placed you here and now for such a time as this. Mordecai's statement to Esther ought to redound in all of our minds regularly. Here and now. Here and now for such a time as this. It may not be as dramatic as saving a whole ethnic people group from annihilation. It may be as simple as, As teaching your young child the ways of Christ, or speaking to your grandchildren in a way that communicates there's a God in heaven who loves sinners and who sent his Son to redeem us from our sin. Or it might be to to be that light in that dark place of work that you enter into day after day after day, but be assured of this, brothers and sisters that God has a purpose for your life where you are right now. Who knows? But he has put you in the kingdom for such a time as this. And then finally, our responsibility, come what may, is to trust the Lord by doing what he's called us to do and to leave the consequences to him. And we can do that if we are assured as we should be when we consider his dealings with Esther, that he's always directing and equipping his people to fulfill his good purpose in us and for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Esther. We thank you for this book of Esther and the way that you intervened Anonymously at times, it just you're not mentioned and yet your fingerprints are all over the story. Help us to consider that that's the way you often deal with our lives, not in these big, dramatic interventions, but in the day-by-day, quiet, almost unobservable ways of providing for us, denying us, putting us in situations and circumstances we would never choose in order to fulfill your good purposes in us and through us. We long to be good stewards of all that you've given to us. And we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to pursue a life that would result in such stewardship. For We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.